If you entrust me with the presidency, I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us to come together. United, we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. My fellow Americans, tonight I profoundly accept this nomination for President of the United States. Hello everyone, welcome to the second episode of Season 2 of The Battle for Washington here on RCB. There are about 40 days left before Election Day, and there has never been so much tension and so much doubt looming over the American elections. Last Saturday was the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the second woman ever nominated to the Supreme Court, the notable progressive within the highest judiciary instance in America. Now, all eyes are on Donald Trump and Republicans in the Senate to see who will be nominated in what seems to be a battle already lost for Democrats. It could be a notable shift in momentum if Trump achieves his desire to have his nominee appointed before November 3rd, as he repeatedly refused to come into the peaceful transition of power if he loses. The race for the White House doesn't wait, so without further delay, here is the Battle for Washington. Twenty twenty American elections. This is the battle for Washington. First and foremost, there are concerns about the very fallout of this election. What will happen once the voting has ended and the results are given? Because Trump said this week twice that the result of this, the election may be unreliable, refusing to take an intelligible and clear commitment for a peaceful transition. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I understand and, that, but and, people are rioting. Do you commit oh, no, to making sure that there's a no, peaceful transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, the ballots are out of control. You know it, and you know who knows it better okay. than anybody else. The Democrats know it better than anybody else. Go ahead. <laughs> A day after the President Trump's refusal to commit to a peaceful transfer of power came rebukes from Democrats, nervous distancing from Republicans, and attempts at reassurance from the White House. Mr. Trump weighed in again Thursday and said that he was not sure that the November election could be honest because mail-in ballots are, quote, a whole big scam. Trump was responding to reporters' question about whether he would consider the November election results legitimate only if he wins in contrast to his press secretary's assurance to journalists early in the day that he would accept the result of a free and fair election, Trump launched into his latest complaint about mail-in ballots. Earlier in the day, Christopher A. Ray, the director of the FBI, told lawmakers that he had not seen evidence of a coordinated national voter fraud effort, undercutting Mr. Trump's effort to stoke fears about mail-in ballots. And of course... Those remarks are a bad advertisement for the Republican Party in general, especially when they have to get support for the Supreme Court nomination. But we'll get to that later. Trump is the first president in modern history to not commit to a peaceful transition, which led Democrats to condemn him as a threat to American democracy. Here is Nancy Pelosi. It's no surprise, uh, again, because the president has been contemptible of science and governance. And so you see 200,000 people have died. But I, I, um, I have confidence in the American people, and I have confidence that, <clears throat> that he won't get away with saying, for example, I won with the popular, the vote on the ground, the vote in the mail doesn't count, and the rest of that. 
but it remind him, you are not in North Korea, you are not in Turkey, you are not in Russia, Mr. President, and by the way, you are not in Saudi Arabia. You are in the United States of America. It is a democracy. So why don't you just try for a moment to honor your oath of office to the Constitution of the United States? Many Republicans, including McConnell, while declining to call the president out by name, distanced themselves from, from the remarks and insisted that there would be a peaceful transfer of power if former Vice President Biden won the presidency. McConnell wrote on Twitter, The winner of the November the 3rd election will be inaugurated on January the 20th. There will be an orderly transition, just as there has been every four years since, since 1792. Following this, the Senate just passed a mostly symbolic resolution guaranteeing its support for a peaceful transition. But what does this all say about the upcoming election? Trump chooses a strategy based on tension pushed at its paroxysm and also based on an unfounded presumption of fraud. On top of it all, it also delegitimizes his rival. In other words, even if Biden wins, his victory will have no legitimacy. Trump's rhetoric is about an Earth versus them conspiracy. It may simply be a political strategy targeting election day, but it also raises concerns about a normal democratic discourse because now the campaign back and forth is hindered by an inequality between the two candidates. Indeed, Biden never put into question the possibility of a Trump victory in November. There can be no normal democratic debate because Trump deems Biden can only win through fraud. On the other hand, even if Trump eventually accepts a potential loss, what will be the attitude of millions of people that Trump's succession convince? And finally, how to reconcile two diametrically opposed political vision when 75% of voters agreed in a 2018 survey that they couldn't agree on basic facts. All in all, on November the 3rd, tension between citizens will reach a peak that America may not have seen for a while. The second big news of the week is, as we said in the intro, the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg last Friday, the 18th of September. It may not be necessary to rehash all the implications of this unfortunate events, but the only thing you have to remember is the nomination by Trump of a new Republican justice that will for sure occur and that will dramatically shift the equilibrium in the Supreme Court to six Republican justices and three Democrats. In that sense, Trump is playing with the nomination as a campaign argument, hoping for further support from evangelists because Republican justices would weigh in on debates around, around abortion or health care. In addition, if the election is too narrow, it will be determined in the Supreme Court, as it was the case in 2000 for Bush Jr. versus Gore, and Trump wants to stack the odds in his favor. So far, the battle has focused on whether Republicans should push a confirmation through election day. But the debate over the court is Satan to rope in all kinds of other issues, including some that the candidates had to hope to avoid, like abortion, where the stakes are sky high. For Republicans, Anything that shifts attention away from President Trump's handling of the coronavirus pandemic is a good thing, given the low marks voters have given his response. An open Supreme Court seat is even better because it reminds Republican voters, including those who may not like Mr. Trump's chaotic style, of one of the reasons they support the president. He has delivered on their decades-long project to remake the federal judiciary. This vacancy, in particular, plays to one of the Democrats' strongest voter base female voters. 
men of whom saw Justice Ginsburg as an icon, snatching up jewelry shaped like her famous collar and even getting tattoos of her face. The president and his aides know they must walk a delicate line between mobilizing their base of evangelical voters with hot topics like ending abortion or protect religious freedom and alienating more moderate suburban women who are already defecting to Joe Biden. Earlier this week, eyes were on the Senate, where Republicans were looking for 15 members of their party to vote for the nominations. Concerns started to rise when two Republican senators refused a vote on the next justice before election, but they quickly died down when Mitt Romney, who has voted for Trump's impeachment, decided he would move forward for nomination. Now, there is no doubt Trump will have his nominee confirmed. But the question is when, as the nomination process usually takes 70 days. Now we're moving forward to the second part of this episode, where we'll focus on the issue of ballots. You've heard it just before, it is a critical matter in this election. This week, we are receiving another student from Sciences Po, Beatrice Coquillot, whom you can find through her beautiful drawings in Le Petit Ragondin, and also who designed our gorgeous podcast logo. She's French, but also American, and she has voted in the state of Texas. Hello, Beatrice. Hi, thanks for having me. So now, because you're studying abroad, you won't be in the States to vote in person in November. And thus, you just filled out this week an absentee ballot. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? And how is the whole process going? So for this time around, for the uh, for the actual elections, um, it was simpler because I'd already registered super early in the year for the primary elections. But basically, because it was my first election, like you have to register with the federal postcard application, um, which is, you know, a whole process. And I think it can only be done by mail. So basically, the whole process isn't uh, digitized. But now I get to receive like my ballots uh, in, you know, presidential elections, but also all other elections by email. I'd say the only difficulty, the thing that's a bit annoying is that uh, we use, there's, a, you put your ballot in, uh, which is massive, by the way, it's not just a president, it's like <laughs> all the other people, the railroad commissioner, you vote for the railroad commissioner, I don't know anything <laughs> about what they do. Um, but it's a massive ballot, and you put it in a secrecy envelope, which can be like your own, it's just an unmarked envelope. Mm -hmm. And then you have to use a carrier envelope. But when you print it out, it's literally just two sheets of paper that you glue together and stick the other envelope in. So it's very artisanal. Um, and it's something it's not very reliable, obviously, because, you know, it's an international post and mm -hmm. these circumstances, even without like Trump's meddling with the, the post office, um, you have to like, be sure that it won't take more than 45 days. And I'm in France, I'm not even that far. Mm. I know that um, you can also go actually to the US embassy to get a domestic, like a, I think it's, um, it's called a diplomatic pouch, that's it, um, which is uh, free, I believe, but it takes longer. So I just posted it with my expensive ass international stamps. <laughs> um, it's just, you know, it's not the most accessible process, um, But it's something that I mean, at least you vote. Yeah, at least you vote. Um, and it's I mean, it's at least something that anybody living abroad can do. And so it's absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. So concerns are rising about this election legitimacy because Trump never stops saying that the ballots are out of control and giving birth to suspicions of fraud in the election process. So how how do you see this as a voter? Um. I mean, in a sense, I agree with Trump in the perspective that voting with a ballot, like with a mail-in ballot, I mean, isn't necessarily uh, reliable. 
Um, but I don't think I, I'm like agreeing with him in the broader sense. Uh, I don't believe voter fraud to be that extensive as he says. I mean, reports say they aren't, and I trust those. I trust him more uh, than 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 his assertions because you know I think the arguments he use are more. Uh, a campaign practice. They're mm-hmm. more an argument. He's, it's an argument he had in 2016. It's something he uses, you know, as a political argument, as a political position. So I don't necessarily believe uh, the way he frames it. I don't necessarily believe his position is legitimate. But I will say that I'm extremely worried about uh, ballots and their processing. I know also that beyond even just the postal service, maybe perhaps not being very reliable or extensive enough to give the opportunity of everybody to vote by mail. Um, I think a lot of poll workers, for example, uh, that usually would volunteer would be volunteers or even just be paid, be like temporarily mm-hmm. working as poll workers. Um, a lot of people aren't showing up because they're afraid of the coronavirus because it's not safe in general. And so there's this concern uh, that especially because we need more people to handle all the paperwork of the mail in ballots, we actually have less people than usual. So that also is kind of scary. Also, you've mentioned it just before. Let's talk about the post office, to which Trump undercut funds and nominated at its head a supporter of the Republican of the Republican Party. Do you fear that some votes won't be counted? And also, do you agree with Trump saying that the mail-in ballots are unreliable? Uh, well, like I said, I think Trump has a point in terms of the difficulty of voting and, and the idea well, of voting at a distance and the, the possibility that certain ballots like won't be accounted for properly. One thing that I worry about, especially the first time that I voted, I'm not even sure that my primary election ballot went in. Oh. Um, it's just, you know, personally, the instructions aren't always very clear um, when it comes to, you know, yeah, what the what the processes are, what a, a like a good ballot, or a correct ballot looks like, especially when you have that many more steps and you're not just, you know, putting something into a machine. You're like wrapping it up and making sure it's right and stuff and writing your you have to sign, you have to write your information. So it's I think the risk in this situation is that a lot of people who may have maybe have never voted by mail before will not know how to do it. And whether or not, you know, the the poll workers are biased or whether or not there's, you know, depending on the amount of zeal in each uh, office, maybe the smallest mistakes will be, you know, uh, used to count off to eliminate certain ballots from the process. Um, And that's a mistake that a lot of people are likely and liable to make, especially if, I mean, a lot of people, for example, a record amount of people have registered for this election. So there are a lot of first time voters, perhaps Mm -hmm. a lot of people who don't know how to do it, who certainly wouldn't know how to do it at a distance. And I guess, on top of that, um, um, there are some statistics indicating that, you know, because of the correlation between being a Democrat and trusting the danger that is uh, the coronavirus, uh, a, a significant amount of Democrats, more so than Republicans, will vote at a distance with mail-in ballots. So if the mail-in ballots are more susceptible to be overly scrutinized or to be unreliable because of the just the complication around voting at a distance or because of the defunding of the Postal Service or because of the lack of polling centers to welcome all this, then it's like so many obstacles, uh, so many more obstacles for Democrat voters, mm-hmm. for a lot of Democrat voters. So, you know. I think it could maybe skew the results. So now I want to take you to a completely other subject, uh, the the coronavirus pandemic. So because the human toll went over 200,000 deaths this week in the US. So how do you assess Trump's handling of the coronavirus 
pandemic, uh, but from France. Yeah, it's really surreal. To be honest, um, I don't judge American people so much anymore, seeing, you know, how Europe, uh, the cases in Europe are rising again. Um, of course, I'm angry at the people, you know, who deny still the existence of the coronavirus or the need for a mask, who whine about, you know, I can't breathe. Fuck you. That's a Black Lives Matter slogan. You can't use that. Excuse me. Um, it's I think what is most surreal is like the way the media addresses it. I mean, directly from the horse's mouth, Trump has completely changed the way he talks about the pandemic. He used to call it the flu. And then all of a sudden now he's talking about how he always knew it was so important. You know, mm. I mean, a lot of people are trying to flip the script because they don't want to be held responsible for, you know, having a, 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 like uh, refuse to acknowledge possible problems and to refuse to acknowledge the gravity of the situation, rather, um, and who are afraid, basically, to to be held responsible for the harm that they caused. But, you know, Fox News had to switch around its narrative. Um, a, few, a few weeks back, I think they did this uh, actually very um, powerful uh, interview of Trump actually challenging him on his decisions, but they weren't always saying that. And it's so surreal and frustrating to see the denial of the mistakes that were made in communicating this, even if you want to say that uh, they couldn't have known, that it was so uncertain, that they were trying to save people from fear-mongering, at least admit that you were wrong. That's the barest minimum. Because now so many people died and misinformation, denial, you know, I mean, just blatant lies, me not listening to, to Fauci, who, you know, was so had has so, so much credit and so much like respect to be had for him. It's first there were already experts pronouncing themselves on the issue early on and refusing to listen to that. Again, none of this is, is surprising to me because the denial of facts, the denial of expertise is something that already exists in the U.S., but it's so shocking and it's so frustrating. It's like they're gaslighting us <laughs> into making us believe that they handled it right from the beginning just because they don't want to take responsibility. Um, you know, but somebody will have to take responsibility and Trump has to take his fair share of responsibility. I don't know if he really realizes even now how, how big this is or how much he's responsible for it. Mm, I see. And a more general question to end this interview. How does it feel to be an American this far from home in these very difficult times, especially when your country is as divided as today at the dawn of its history? It's terrible. <laughs> it's I've never felt this helpless. You know, obviously... Now that I'm becoming like that, I'm starting to vote and having to follow the news a lot. Um, you just become so exposed to the division and the polarization and things like that. And I do feel more politically engaged than ever, but also simultaneously more powerless than ever. Now that I'm aware of all of what's happening at a distance again, I really wish I was there sometimes. I feel almost kind of guilty for not having been able to take part in activism or anything like that. Of course, me as you know, my little self won't be able to do much in a protest, but I just want to be there. I want to go and be a poll worker. I want to, you know, be uh, directly in contact with population, urging people to vote and to register to vote and things like that. There's still a fair amount of things I can do at a distance. Uh, I think I can like call senators and take part in like you know, you could you could their their um their websites and associations and stuff that just 
find people to call to pester them to go register to go vote. Uh, there are some states with same day uh, registration for elections. So you can literally just show up and, and register and vote on the same day. You know, so these are these states are definitely worth targeting. But it's like I just I just want to be there. You know, on some level, I feel like it's worse than ever because of the just the final explosion, for example, against police brutality. But it's been building up for so long and I have been looking at it for so long. We've all been seeing it for so long, this polarization Mm -hmm. that it feels impossible to come back from. Mm -hmm. It's just like you can't, you know, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how anybody would fix this if we're that divided on the basic facts. I mean, I wish I could like reach out, you know, and debate a Republican or something and maybe find common areas, but it seems so daunting and there will inevitably be so many people that you just can't agree with and that I don't want to agree with because I already hate them enough. <laughs> I mean, I, we've we've gone we've gone this far, we've gone so far apart and now like there isn't really a center or the center is just really soft about issues and things like that. Yeah. Thanks a lot for coming, Beatrice. It was our pleasure. And I'm sure the, um, the feeling of being helpless will be shared and understood by many Americans here in France. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> Bye. Bye. This is the end of this episode. We hope you liked it. RCB is available on all streaming platforms. See you next week, exactly one month before Election Day was The Battle for Washington, Season 2, Episode 2. See ya.